The dress of Muslim women has been politicized by secular thinkers, left-wing activists, conservatives, feminists, and talk show hosts that all believe their take on the subject will somehow emancipate Muslim women. For centuries, an obsession with Muslim women's dress has enabled an array of political projects. Last week, we spoke to Sister Imana Basi about how Muslim women should place themselves in this confusing world. Today, we speak to two guests. Firstly, Farhat Amin, who is working on a book project to address the twin challenges of Muslim confusion about their rights and feminism. And then I discuss why the hijab has been politicized and its Shari'i rules with Ustad Iyad Hilal, an author and an imam from the United States. We at the Thinking Muslim Project realize the challenges Muslim women face and our approach is to clarify a subject and stay away from trite judgments. As Imam Ghazali was once asked, tell me the hukum for the one that does not pray, the questioner was trying to ascertain whether such a person was an unbeliever. Imam Ghazali responded, the hukum is that you kindly take his hand and bring him to the masjid. His answer showed kindness, but moved beyond petty labelling and to a practical remedy. Today where confusion is so widespread, we should be intelligently addressing the thoughts that have brought us here and not adding to the chorus of machismo grandstanding that is now associated with some social media interactions within Muslims. Farah Tamin, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam. So let me start by asking you about the hijab. Why has it become such a talking point in the West and within Muslim circles? Uh, well, I think there are two reasons for that. Um, firstly, I would say it's not actually a recent phenomena. I'm thinking, um, you know, back 20, 25 years since I've been wearing hijab, there's, it's always been there. You know, it, there's always something that's said about the hijab. And usually it is a negative um, discussion that's had around the hijab it's because liberals, they fundamentally think um, it's a sign of oppression and um what they do is that they have created confusion amongst Muslims. And one of the ways that they do this is that they they will um, give platforms and publicity to um, self-proclaimed Muslim feminists who will question the whole um, obligatory nature of wearing the hijab. And so, for example, um, Samina Ali, she gave a te- very famous TED Talk, on YouTube, uh, which is now on YouTube. It has over six million views which it's titled what the Quran, um, Quran really says about hijab. And she she isn't an Islamic scholar at all, but she takes the ayah relating to covering and um, she interprets it and says that you don't have to wear it. There are other women as well, like Mona El-Tahawi, um, Fatima Mernasi, you know, who they, they sow the seeds of confusion in the minds of young Muslim women and any... Muslim woman who may not have studied um, this subject in a lot of detail, but because they have some kind of academic background, they make their argument very convincing. So, um, and the reason why these women are given, and men as well, are given these platforms is that um, liberal society wants to reform Islam and they see hijab as an easy target um, to use to, to, to create that reform project. Now, you've argued before that Muslim women are sleepwalking into feminism. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, it's interesting that um, since I've been uh, started to do 
speak about this topic in my podcast and then also when we delivered um, uh, the uh, Thinking Muslims Guide to Liberalism course that I spoke to and was contacted by Muslim women who they would they would say they were Muslim feminists they would say that but then after just speaking to them for uh, and corresponding with them for a little while um, I was then able to explain to them well have you what do you mean by that term? And and it was interesting, again, that they had um, thought that because feminism seems to have a monopoly on women's rights, um, because they have the loudest voice in, in, you know, in liberal societies. So when a Muslim woman looks at feminism, all they see is the, the slogan women's rights. And then what they think is, well, Islam gives me rights as a woman, you know, I'm allowed to um, go go and work. Alyssa says I can do that. I can choose. No one can force me to marry someone I don't want to. I was given that right um, by Allah. And so they then um, see, well, that those rights are in tune with feminism. So, but the thing that they are not looking at, and they and maybe, and this is um, the sleepwalking bit that they haven't realized because they just have, may not have had time to study the topic is that feminism means much more than just women's rights. What feminism is doing is it's subverting the Islamic rights that Allah has given to women, as well as the responsibilities. And for example, um, you know, in in Islam, um, a husband, it's his responsibility to provide and maintain his family. So he needs to earn money and then his money is used to, to take care of the family. A woman, Allah hasn't given woman that responsibility or that role. Um, it's very clear. But feminists would say, um, no, they should equally, equally contribute. You know, that's what they should do. So there's an example of the rights that feminists would be advocating contradicts um, with the rights that Allah has told, given, give, uh, given to a man and not given to a woman, you know, as far as responsibility. Um, so um, it is essential that, we do look into the history, look at the ideas, look at the basis of any ideology before we start adopting it. You spoke there about Muslim women and their rights in Islam, but it seems to me that today there is an absence of uh, the knowledge that Muslims require and Muslim women uh, need for them to, to really ascertain what their rights are. So why is there an absence of Islamic knowledge available today? You're completely right. If we look at popular culture, um, it, it, everything is popular culture saying to um, women, Muslim and non-Muslim, that feminism is cool. It's it's um, it's fighting your corner. It's there for you, and you can join feminist groups. You can join feminist book clubs. You can. It's so accessible, and that's um, um, knowledge that a girl wants to obtain uh, Islamically. That should be just as accessible. Um, but it unfortunately isn't. I'm thinking when I've wanted to uh, attend a women's only Islamic class, it took me quite a long time to find one that I could. But alhamdulillah, I was able to do that. Um, so I'm I'm wondering, um, I don't think, um, I think Muslim communities, they do want their daughters and their wives and their sisters to gain that Islamic knowledge. But then have they prioritised it? And I think that's something that... Um, as a community, so where you know um, we have to prioritise um, that access to Islamic knowledge and going to classes, and um, because we have to think in our past, you know, there's a really um, interesting book that Sheikh Akram Nadwi um, he's written. It's called 
Al-Muhaddithat, uh, The Women Scholars in Islam. And this is just a compilation of the biographies of um, over 100 female Muslim scholars of our past. So we know that, um, you know, uh, it did exist. And th so therefore it can exist again. We can have that, um, those systems in place where as well as young boys and men being able to become scholars, women can do that. It's just whether we um, give it enough of a priority and put money into it, put time into it. Um, and what we need to realize is if we don't have women uh, being able to go to other women and learn from them, then what will happen to a whole generation of mother, the new mothers, the, you know, the future mothers, they need that knowledge to pass on to the children because it's the mother who is at home taking care of the kids. If she doesn't have a, a, a good grounding in Islamic knowledge, then where are the kids going to gain this knowledge from? You know, the home is where the first school. And at the moment, you're working on a project, a book project, looking at Muslim women and feminism. Can you tell us a bit more about this project, please? Well, Alhamdulillah, um, it's, uh, it was a project that um, we decided to, to begin because there wasn't, um, there weren't, there wasn't a book out there. There were, there were books about feminism. There are plenty of them written by non-Muslims. Then you have books by um, Muslim feminists. And then there are books by general Muslim women who will be talking about feminism. So again, think of a young, um, think of our, you know, our daughter, uh, someone's daughter, you know, a sister, she wants to find out what does Islam say? Can I adopt this as an idea and live by it? Is feminism compatible with Islam? It, it will take her quite a long time to find that information. And um, I realized it wasn't available because one, I, I couldn't find a book like that for myself. I would have loved to have had one. And also when uh, we did the course um, um, and I was meeting women, they asked me, can you recommend a book? And I, couldn't, and I couldn't recommend a book that looked at, you know, of course, Alhamdulillah, there were books on women in Islam. There, Alhamdulillah, there are many of those. But there isn't a book that is t tackling the modern issues that, um, you know, contemporary issues that more women are facing. So whether, you know, the modest fashion facade, you know, how um, uh, feminism is used as a foreign policy tool. Uh, in our countries there was this a host all of the chapters we've thought really carefully about them to just all the different aspects about so you know the role of a wife the role of a mother you know the idea of equality all these really important ideas that we need to address and give the islamic perspective on um that's what the book will be addressing and uh inshallah our plan isn't just to write the book it's already i'm planning on an online course or courses that we can um, deliver to Muslim women internationally, because it is an international problem um, uh, uh, based around the chapters. So there's a lot of work to be done, but Alhamdulillah, what's amazing is that um, once we started the project, um, I contacted, started contacting female writers and just on my social media and through my podcast, a, a Muslim mum podcast, started to um, reach out to Muslim women and the, um, response has been really overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. Um, and so it shows that women want this and, they, they, it's, and they're willing to do the hard work to uh, realise this project, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, it seems like you've got a very good set of writers there. Now, how are you going to address the problem uh, of mislabeling? I mean, I often find that when Muslim women call for their rights, they're very quickly condemned as being Muslim feminists. And I'm sure that's not helping 
the tone isn't helping, but also the accusations that come from sometimes from Muslim men, but also from other Muslim women. Uh, I'm thinking very much about access to masjids, to mosques, and many Muslim women would like to uh, go to the mosque, and, and when they ask for that right, which seems to be an Islamic right, that they are very quickly labelled as being feminists and others. So, you know, I suppose there is a uh, there is a a fine line one needs to tread in in writing a book like this. Um, well, I think it's um, I think it's very easy to um, label uh, a young um, Muslim girl. It's easy to label her as a feminist when she when in reality all she's asking for are the rights that Allah has given her. And so I've noticed that happens. Um, I've seen it happen. I've seen it on videos and I've seen it in Islamic talks. And the thing is that we, we shouldn't do that. We, we can't do that. If Allah's given us a right that we can't take the community or as a, you know, in a family, they can't take that right away from her. So, you know, just an example, the right to choose, um, you know, have a choice with who she marries, you know, and there's, you know, uh, a family can't take that away from a girl so just that's you know one example um and you do see that that does have, there are many examples like that and then and women will feel you know quite um they'll feel see the injustice of that and what can then happen is they we don't want them to then think islam is then the problem when really it's an understanding of muslims that's a problem and i don't want to just blame men for this because that's being that would be really shallow it's a it's a Muslim problem. Men and women are not taking the time. And I'd say I was guilty of this as well, that not taking the time to understand what are the Islamic rights that Allah has given to a husband, a father, a brother in the same way. What rights is Allah given to, you know, a grandmother, a mother, a wife, a daughter. Once we know that, and then inshallah, we do our best to live by that and live and implement that in our families. Um, you know that has to be the starting point and then you know we then so we take it from there what we shouldn't do is to, um, in trying to protect our girls in particular from you know the evils of society that we see we can sometimes um take a very like an ultra conservative uh, opinion that isn't really it isn't grounded in the main you know the four schools of thought in you know in orthodox islam instead of taking that we try and we take um an opinion that is is there? We're thinking, no, that would be. It may seem harsher, but it will be more. It will be better and protect our daughters. So, as an example, in Saudi, for for many years, they wouldn't allow women to drive cars, and so you would have, a, you know, a ruling was given on that. Now that's actually changed, but um, that was unjustified by Islam. So again, people look at that. Think that that's completely ridiculous. That's so um, that's so backward and so detrimental for a woman. Um, now we mustn't do things like that in our personal lives or as a community because it does um, put young girls and women off um, Islam and then it turns them away and where will they turn to they'll they'll turn to feminists because the feminist movement has been very good um, nowadays in welcoming young Muslim women and they'll say to them you can wear your hijab you can have your cultural identity um, we will fight your corner and we will fight for your rights and so then they, they're turning to them. And, you know, that's the worst thing that could, we could want for our daughters. Jazakallah khair. And if someone wants to find out a little more about the book, maybe they want to contribute or maybe they want to help you in some way or form, uh, how would they find out more about it? 
Okay, so Hamza, there's a number of things you can do. Firstly, uh, please do the war for this project and do do the war that we are able to explain um, a lesbian and uh, relating to women and feminism and Islamic alternative that we can do justice to this topic, inshallah. So our, your du'as are the, the best thing that you can do for uh, this project. And then secondly, if you'd like to write for the, the book, then please go to thinkingmuslim.com and uh, there's a, we've got a, a post there where you can get all the details, you can find out who the writers are, um, and get all the information you need in this contact page. Um, you can also, there's a launch good page we have where we're um, um, fundraising for the book because so that we can market it and promote it, you know, as widely as possible. So they, they're the three main ways. Um, and um, there's also, I, I have my podcast, A Muslim Mum podcast. You can contact me via that as well. Um, but inshallah, uh, alhamdulillah, I didn't, realize how much um this book was needed only when we actually started writing and started to promote it we've had we've had so many positive uh so much positive feedback about it and the importance of having a book like this um so inshallah you know your support is greatly appreciated now i turn to uh ustad iyad hilal uh iyad hilal is an author he's written a a celebrated book on Usul al-Fiqh, and uh, he is also an imam uh, in America. And you can see his um, his sermons as well as his material on YouTube under Al-Arkham Institute. Now, Brother Iyad Hilal, Jazakallah khair for joining us. And uh, firstly, really, it's uh, my question is about uh, the confusion. Why is there such a confusion about Muslim women's dress? I mean, it seems that uh, this is unprecedented in the contemporary era. I can't imagine any other era in Islamic history that uh, the confusion would be so broad and so uh, so great in terms of what exactly that dress is. So can you uh, maybe shed, from your perspective, shed some light on, on why this confusion currently exists? Uh, okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, as you mentioned, the misunderstanding is recent. I cannot refer to any historical period of time in which there was confusion or misunderstanding regarding the dress code for women. There are some differences on some issues as such as does woman has to cover have to cover her face? Is the face part of the aura or not? Uh, are the feet part of the aura or not? In the Hanafi fiqh, as an example, it's allowed for women to not to cover her feet. Some other schools, they say, no, they, she has to. In, the, in some, in some, not all, Hanbali fiqh uh, or madhab, uh, they say that woman has to cover her face. So she has to have the niqab or, or, the, or the hijab, not just the khimar. But none of them before debated, uh, as an example, the khimar to mean the, the hair cover, the head cover. That was, was never debated. Um, I cannot at all uh, find anyone from uh, reliable uh, fiqhi sources that this issue was uh, disputed ever before, just recently. So it's a recent issue. 
Why the confusion? That's because of different factors. It gets us back to the time in which uh, some Europeans started uh, addressing the, the problem of the sick man of Europe, Ottoman state. They want to bring it down, but they don't want to use any physical force. They want to start from within. So they started attempts through missionaries and through secret associations and through trying to implant certain ideas, throwing it to people so that they will embrace it and to break the, 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 the social fabric and even the unity among Muslims. Started calling for nationalism, Arab nationalism, Turkish nationalism, started uh, questioning certain ideas uh, or rules regarding Islam. And uh, one rule that they started questioning the issue of uh, how Islam did Islam spread. They started, some, some, some people started saying that Islam spread by sword. And of course, this is false statement. But uh, another issue was the penal code in Islam. Another issue is that not, is the, not just the woman dress, man-woman relationship was also addressed. So women's dress fit in that. And this happened as early as maybe in the end of the 19th century. And there were, that was sponsored in Egypt by uh, the British colonialists. Lord Cromer, who was the general counselor of Britain in Egypt, he uh, was able to uh, sponsor or to manage a weekly seminar in the house of one of the princesses, Nazli Fadl, and in which some people would be invited to that uh, uh, seminar, Muhammad Abdo, Qasim Amin, Saad Zaghloul, and others. And the princes can invite only the ones who uh, Lord Cromer would uh, tell her to invite. And they started discussing certain issues uh, of different uh, range of, of topics. And Qasim Amin was one of those who were frequent uh, uh, attendees in, in, in that seminary. And the, he published what, the, the first book, what is called Tahrir al-Mar'a, Women Liberation. And that book came out as an outcome of that seminary, to the point that some people say that it was written actually by Sheikh Muhammad Abdu, not by Qasim Amin. Now, so then in Sa'ad Zaghloul had his wife meet with some women like Huda Sha'rawi and Safiya Zaghloul, actually, and some others started calling to uh, remove this uh, quote-unquote oppression, uh, oppression by the, referring to their uh, dress code, the khimar, the niqab. All of this is an oppressive dress, but they did so in an organized fashion. One time, Saad Zaghloul was coming from outside a, a trip, and there were welcoming him. So he went to his wife and Huda Sha'rawi and removed the khimar from their uh, heads. 
And immediately the other, the other women who were there, they started moving the khimar and they started walking in Cairo in form of demonstration to express their view. Now, what they did not realize is that Lord Cromer, who kept talking about women liberation, about women's rights, about all of these issues regarding women, he was in Britain, member of a movement opposing giving women their rights to vote. He would oppose it in Britain, he would oppose even women's right to vote, which Islam actually gave to women centuries ago, from the very beginning of the da'wah of Muhammad sallallahu So now you have this double standard. In Britain you are doing so, and in Egypt you are doing so. So since then, they started this norm. And then recently, oh, go ahead. That's really interesting. But why? Why would the British colonialists want to pick on a subject like women's dress? I mean, there are plenty of subjects in uh, of controversy which they can use and, and try to malign Islam with. But what was the particular obsession uh, of Lord Cromer's with uh, women's dress? You know, family is the basic unit in the society. Any- Society is not just a bunch of individuals getting together. So you have established families, and then you have relationship among people in the society, and you have some other components added so that you will have a society. Just a group of people living anywhere doesn't establish a society at all. So if the family is the basic unit, then you can understand why there was a focus on this. To bring this social unit down, to get the uh, people into a situation where they they will no longer be uh, abiding by Islamic views regarding man-woman relationship. The woman's woman's dress is one issue at the hand. But what uh, what, what is the uh, smoking gun, let me say? But what was behind it is addressing the, the, the structure, family structure in Islam, or what some people call it social system, man-woman relationship in Islam. So that was the point. And of course, if they succeed on this, you know, many other things will be open to them in the society. That's why this was brought as an issue. It's not meant by itself per se. That's a really interesting point. And so uh, to attack the family was uh, the first process in uh, dismantling the the institutional structures in in an Islamic society, which binds it together. Uh, I wouldn't say the first step. Right. You know, because now you cannot tell which step was taken first, but Mm. it is a step Uh used to do so. But, but but okay, this was uh, the days of uh, British and French and European colonialism. Yes. And um, uh, this led to uh, the dismantlement of the Ottoman state and um, uh, the rest is history, as they say. You know, the Muslim world is now um, carved up into, into smaller units uh, with varying yes. degrees of success and mostly failure. Uh, why does it seem like this project continues? Why is it that 
the basic family unit and the role of women still remains a hot topic when it comes to uh, the Western claims against Islam. Okay, when when the area got divided, it never turned to be a quote-unquote history. We are still living it. That's one point. The other point, now Britain at one time occupied most of the region. Yeah, Egypt, you talk about Egypt, you talk about uh, after the mandate, after the uh, after 19, First World War and the Arab Revolution, they came and get into Jordan and Palestine. The French came into Syria and Lebanon, what's called Syria and Lebanon. The British also came to Iraq. So the area was basically occupied with by the British and by the French. Maybe the exception was Libya. It was occupied by, by the Italians. So uh, they brought with them their curricula, educational curricula. So it has to be implemented. Cromer, when he was in Egypt, he wrote a book, Misr al-Haditha. It is called Misr modern Egypt. Uh, so you can see it's not just a certain period of time in which this issue was addressed, but rather now you have those entities who are um, actually uh, working uh, in education and economics and politics based on the blueprints Britain or France wanted for. for. So uh, that's why it continued. The education continued based on that curriculum, that the, the, those ideas that were subject of uh, the attack by the Orientalists, by the missionaries, by uh, the ones who tried to establish certain secret associations. So all of this continued. They don't want it to be just as a historical era, but rather a continuous uh, event. So that, that continued. Then recently, in the past, there was no, uh, okay, if we leave everything as is, in, in the education leaves as is, uh, but recently uh, there is a new uh, attempt by some individuals from within claiming that uh, Islam did not ask women to cover their their, 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 uh, hair, their head, as an example. All what Islam wants for women is to have modest uh, uh, clothing, and that's it. So so if I I may uh, pause you there for a second, and and, and this understanding, uh, does it have any Islamic precedent? Is there a a discussion in the books of Islamic fiqh which uh, imply that uh, maybe this is the the reasoning behind uh, the text in relation to the khimar. Okay, I read, I can claim that I read most of what was written in this subject. I cannot find an, argu- an argument worth to be addressed. But they bring us, as an example, the word khimar. Khimar means cover. They'll tell you. So, the ayah is talking about uh, cover in generic way. It's not about the head cover. 
but of course no one understands Arabic language and understands the seerah of the Prophet would agree on this. Al-Quran al-Kareem used the word let them bring their khimar, their khimars over their chests. This, the word khimar has to be understood within some other legal texts, within some other ahadith. And we have certain ahadith in which the Prophet ﷺ uh, explained to us these ahadith that 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 uh, that khimar is not the, the, just the generic meaning, but rather it is uh, the head cover. And you can see this in many ahadith and even in many Arab dictionaries. As an example, in Lisan al-Arab, it says, وَتَخَمَّرَتْ بِالْخِمَارِ وَاخْتَمَرَتْ لَبِسَتْهُ وَخَمَّرَتْ بِهِ رَأْسَهَا غَطَّتْهُ اخْتَمَرَتْ بِالْخِمَارِ She is using the khimar as a cover to cover her hair, her, her, her head. And in the hadith, Ibn Mandur continued saying, and in the hadith of Umm Salama, Rasulullah used to wipe over the shoes and over the khimar. The Prophet himself, he had quote unquote the khimar, which is the turban. So it is used, imama, one word to mean turban, it is also khimar. So here in the khimar, when Umm Salama said that the Prophet wiped over the socks or over the shoes and the khimar, doesn't mean a scarf Rasulullah used to put around his uh, chest. No way. It, it, can't, it can't mean this. So he, it's referring, she is referring to his head cover. And then there are some other hadith from the Prophet Wasallam. that is also that uh, a man died while uh, during the Hajj when he was in a state of Ihram. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa told them, and he told them how to process him, how to uh, wash him and cover him with the, you know, the, the clothing, the wrap, uh, with the shroud or with any piece of cloth to cover the deceased one, as we know, the kafan. He told them, don't cover his head. Doesn't mean don't cover him. So the khimar is not just, the, the, it's not a cover in a generic way. And in hadith of the Aisha that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said, Allah does not accept the prayer of a woman who reaches uh, to a point where her periods start coming up, except by khimar. He doesn't mean the khimar wrapped it around her neck or around her chest, but rather the head cover. So <coughs> you have you have these uh, uh, many ahadith are talking uh, about a woman dress in which khimar is used uh, to refer to the head cover, even refer to the head cover of both man or woman, like the hadith of the Prophet that the Prophet used to wipe over the, his khuf, the shoes, and the khimar. Now, we cannot ignore all of this and say the khimar in the eye is generic. So it, the, 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 this, that understanding is 
not, is not objective understanding, I would say. Those who uh, offer this understanding, they were not offering it in an objective way, but rather based on pre-mindset. They want to get into this. Another uh, evidence they bring us that uh, Sayyida Sukaina bint al-Husayn used to walk in the streets of Cairo, Safira. So the, the author said Safira, okay, which means that she was not covering. Well, she, he failed to re- recognize what does Safira mean. Safira means not covering the face. If you, are, if you want to say that she was not covering her hair, you'll say Hasira. So you say Hasira al-Ras means didn't cover her, her head. Safira didn't cover the face. So there is no link between this and between that. So, uh, or a woman used to make wudu with men in the same, from the same water uh, pool. Okay. What does it mean? There is difference between if a woman is making wudu or uh, a nurse or whatever and she moves her uh, arm someplace and then part of her arm was exposed and between keeping exposing it continuously. So when she makes wudu, she has to, to as an example, to wash her hands. She Instantly she brings it up and brings it down. Or for wiping over her, their hair, we know that Rasulullah made wipe, wiped over uh, the khimar. So she can touch even with one finger uh, some parts of her hair under the khimar and then continues the mess over the, uh, over the khimar. It does not mean that this is part of her dress code, that not to cover. There is difference between accidental, accidental exposure and between con- continuously using this, even in the salah, in the salah, when you start your prayer, you have to be covered, man or woman. None of the aura should be uh, exposed. Now, if while you are in the salah, part of your aura was uh, uncovered, and you covered it immediately before making taslim, your salah is valid. But if you kept it uncovered and you made the, the, the taslim and until the salah is over, then the salah is not valid. So there is difference between accidental exposure and between not covering period. So that's why I say I can't see at all any a valid, even not valid, a subjective valid argument, I would say. That, okay, I see his point, although I don't agree with it. You know, not, not even this. You don't give their, their, their uh, discussion this level. To consider, yeah, maybe they have a point, but we don't agree. No, they don't have a point, period. So this is not subject to uh, ikhtilaf. It's not subject to difference of opinion. No, no, it's not. It's not. Uh, what about, uh, so I've heard an argument, which is, um, which is often repeated in, in today's world. And it goes like this. In uh, the Islamic history, the dominant uh, grouping within society were the males and uh, men occupied positions of power, positions of authority, but also all the traditional scholarly seats were occupied by men. And as a result of that, 
those men interpreted the Quran in light of the what they would call a patriarchal society. And so what you have is a male-dominated scholarly scene which is subjectively interpreting the Quran or who are subjectively interpreting the Quran according to uh, the dominant cultural tastes. And, and so I suppose the argument then suggests that if we were to take a step back and, and um, uh, in the uh, observations of today's world where you've got uh, less dominance of, of men, uh, maybe those interpretations could be far more objective and far less inclined to, uh, to, to side with males over women. I mean, how would, how would you understand that? Okay, this opens hmm. the doors for another subject. First of all, the ma'rifa, the epistemology, cannot be called masculine right. or feminine. Ma'rifa is ma'rifa. You know, hmm. that's one point. Second point, let's be very, take it from the very beginning. Rasulullah's hadith is very clear. It's not subject for interpretation to say that, yeah, this person can interpret it in this way, that person can interpret it in that way that it is sub, uh, subjective, that if a woman reads the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, no matter who the woman is, that uh, the hadith of Rasulullah that when the wudu, he wiped over his shoes mm-hmm. and at the khimar. How can, for God's sake, how can she come for another conclusion other than saying that the khimar is the head cover? That's uh, uh, another point regarding this patriarchy Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not biased. So the system is from him. The text is from him. The ones who are interpreted it are both. We have Mufassirin came even from some continent. There is a a lady, Zainul Nisa, I think her name, she she made a full tafsir of Quran. Uh, You have fiqh actually. Fiqh is more important than the tafsir. You have so many Muslim women who were jurists, faqihat. And even as Samarkandi, the one who wrote his book, his, uh, his daughter, uh, Sayyid Aisha, uh, Samarkandi, I think, uh, she was editing her husband's Hanafi fiqh manual. So uh, it's not that it, it, that it's patriarchal interpretation. They are using certain hermeneutics, certain linguistic rules. Those rules are are are, are uh, not biased. They are not set by by this or by that. And women agree on this too. Hmm. But, and the other point I would say that I, I address this in the tafsir that do we need feminine interpretation today? You know, that's totally a different subject. We can, if you, if there's a chance, we can talk about it later on. It's often repeated in modern life that um, the wearing of the hijab is a choice and um, uh, Muslim women will make a decision based on their own free will as to whether uh, they adopt the hijab or the khimar or the other duties in relation to the Islamic dress or not. 
Um, and, and this discussion of free choice is, has become now a, a catchphrase and, and a, there are arguments and counter-arguments that abound on social media. Uh, what is your position on, on this argument of choice? Yeah, like we said, it's catchphrase. Hmm. First of all, free will is a basic principle in Islam. Upon the free will, we will be held accountable. If we are not, if we are losing our free will, we will not be accountable. So when you don't drink, you you don't drink based on your because you decided that was your choice. You chose to be Muslim. No one forced you to be Muslim. You chose to abide by a certain rule or, the, or this rule or that rule. This is by, based on your choice. There is no difference between this free will and between exercising this free will within what I see that it is an order from God. So there is nothing wrong on this in saying that she, uh, Muslim woman, uh, decides to do so based on her free will. Her husband cannot force her to, to wear the uh, certain dress outside. You know, uh, she is internalizing this she is working inshallah to achieve uh, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us in our Quran Kareem to reach to a level where she will be told oh the nafs the human being who has this tranquility return to your lord and enter into the jannah while you are pleased from your Lord and your Lord is pleased from you. So she wants to do that. But the, ex- the exercise of this in this life, no one is forcing her. And even if you have Islamic State, the Islamic State must not depend on force because Islamic State shouldn't be uh, a police state, but rather should depend on people's uh, internalization of these rules and if it happened that it didn't work then you have certain parameters or procedures to make sure that the society will abide by this so I don't see any conflict between the free choice and between the fact that we are ordered by this from God Uh, How do you understand uh, the current movements uh, in the Muslim world in particular in Iran and Saudi Arabia where um, uh, you can argue these two societies have, for many decades, mandated the, the wearing of the hijab in in their own context, the wearing of the hijab, uh, the khimar and, and the abaya uh, in, in society. Uh, but it seems to me that there is a growing movement in both societies of young people, a substantial number of young people, uh, who, who, as yes. a result... Uh, that that sense of coercion has led to them uh, dispensing with the hijab and and seeing it as a as a as a sign of 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 uh, repression from a state. There are two different situations. First of all, you cannot make sure that Islam will be implemented in the right way unless if you have both the political system and the and people are working together. 
people started looking to the political system as oppressive system and as dictators imposed upon them, exploiting them, torturing them, abusing them, they will not listen to them. The, the, uh, they will rebel against them and the rebellion will take different shape. One of it is this form. So in, in, in Iran, people see the way their government is ruling them by force. And they are not looking after the well-being of people, but rather for their political agenda uh, in different areas. They see that they are living the poverty while they are paying billions of dollars to support a tyrant like Al-Assad. So some of them will rebel in this way. Now, the other country you mentioned, uh, they see the double standard. And also, their education is not just to give, to tell women, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, that's rule, this rule, in, in this way. It's, this is a form of indoctrination. You need to build certain frame among people and in the society at large so that you are addressing humans in, in, a, in a comprehensive way to create this internalization and to let them move uh, voluntarily uh, towards the situation which you talk about. Uh, Imam Shatabi, in his uh, great book, Al-Muafaqat, he says one of the maqasid al-shari'a, abdi to get to rid to get people rid out of their whims and desires so that they will be true slaves to God voluntarily as they are his slaves involuntarily. In volunteer in uh, being in, in volunteer slaves to God by our physical uh, system, you know, the way we function in this life, the way we breathe, digestive system, respiratory system, circulatory system. And all of this, we are, we are sub. Uh, we cannot change this system. Our fu- uh, bodies function in certain way. Set this system set by by the Creator, by God, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. So, in this, we are quote unquote his slaves. But we have to be also an another uh, slaves of him in another way by obeying him. So when we obey him, we voluntarily become his slaves, his true servants. So uh, can we build people in this way or not? If we cannot build people in this way, the procedures, the, the laws will not work. And you can see what's happening uh, in the Middle East, in the two countries which you mentioned. I was reading a magazine article a few years back and it described a scene of a Muslim woman who was uh, uh, covered head to toe uh, with her husband who was... Uh, wearing shorts and a t-shirt and uh, uh, the article suggested that there is a, a deep discrimination within Islam. Why is it that the woman has to cover but the man doesn't have to cover? I mean, how would you approach such a uh, such an argument? Again, what's our mindset? If we build the right mindset, these rules are rules from God and God is not biased towards men or women. There is a system, 
look at it as comprehensive system from God. This is allowed, this is not allowed. Now, and for me personally, in order not to create some of these sentiments, I never encouraged our Muslim brothers to go outside with shorts, even if they are until the knee. Because you don't want uh, some other people to start looking at it as if you are, uh, quote-unquote, making yourself different than, than your wife or than the, the sister who is walking next with you, you know, or in general, even, neither for her nor for others. I'm not saying that it's haram, but I'm talking about certain high standard of behavior you'd want even to avoid any behavior that can lead to such sentiments. But for the sister, she needs to look at it as, okay, this is an order from God. Going to look at my, quote-unquote, situation right now or the situation in the hereafter. I need to choose. You've addressed the issue of Muslim women and the dress and the politics behind it. But I suppose a number of Muslims who would define themselves as being feminists would say that there is something deeply unequal about some of the Islamic rules. Um, And these Islamic rules apply differently to men as they do women. Uh, And in particular, we've discussed the issue of dress, but, but there may be a number of areas where uh, there seems to be an asymmetry when it comes to the rules. How would you address Islam's view of equality? Now, the issue of the equality and the inequality cannot be uh, brought up here because when you talk about men, uh, man and woman. They are not the same. They are different creatures. God created man and woman different ways. Both of them share certain responsibilities and each one of them has certain rules fit the nature of this person or that person. The difference is in the, the very, very clear. You talk about apples and oranges. Men, man is not woman and woman is not man. The issue of the equality let me give you uh, one example to see, to see how does Islam, how can you label Islam? The issue of custody is given to whom in Islam? It's given to women, to the mother. The most important job in life is to raise up the children. It's given for, for, for her, not for, for father. The boy will carry the name of the father, but his mother or her mother is the one who will take the custody in the case of a separation or a divorce. Now, there are some other aspects you can say that it is given to man. So if you look to the rules that are given to man, you'll say, yeah, Islam preferred man. But how about the other rule which was given to woman? So can we say that Islam preferred woman? Why don't we say this? As an example, uh, the quwama, the responsibility in the household, as an example. So, not the quwama of man over woman, the quwama of husband 
in, the, in his family life. There is no qawama for man in general over woman in general. Otherwise, woman will be under the qawama of multiple men. Her father, her husband, her brothers, her uncles, her, you know, at the same time. It can't be. So the qawama, rijal qawamun ala nisa, it refers to the husbands over uh, in the family life, within their family life. The, so the qawama is given for husband, but the custody is given for wife. So how can you la uh, label this and that? Go to the inheritance as an example, a very quick example. Some people will tell you, yeah, woman takes half share of man, of, of quote-unquote maids in the inheritance. This is maybe one or few cases in the inheritance. Inheritance can't be restricted to one or two or three or four or hundred cases. So many cases, so many scenarios, some of which women will take half, some of which women will take equal, more than the, what she takes half, and some of them, will, women even will take more than what man takes in the same uh, matrix in a certain uh, scenario. So how can you label this? Where is the preference for males or for females in the inheritance? That's, that's really interesting. Now, uh, we've spoken about Muslims who uh, have been impacted by this process of liberalization. Uh, but also, I suppose, in response to that, you have many uh, uh, conservative-minded Muslims who imply that uh, women have uh, no role in public life. And so her role is really in the private realm and the male's role is in the public realm. Uh, and so hijab in this case is more than just a head covering. Hijab uh, is, a so, is a total segregation between themselves and the society except when it's absolutely necessary for them to interact in society. Um, um, is there an Islamic understanding, or can you clarify the Islamic understanding uh, on this matter? Yeah, those people who have this understanding, I wouldn't call them conservatives. Hmm. I would call them rigid people. <laughs> Rasulullah accepted the bay'ah of women in public from day one. Before anyone thought of giving women their right to vote. You know, the right to vote is in some countries, even recently. It was in the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. So, and in France, when? In Britain, when, when did they get it? Like we said, the Cromer was uh, in a movement anti-women's uh, vote. So that's why that... That tells you how did Muslim women, uh, how was Muslim woman encouraged to play her role in public life? Like a second example, I will give you. When uh, after the uh, Umar ibn Khattab, when Umar ibn Khattab uh, was questioned by women, a woman, when he wanted to have dowry control, a woman told him, yani, how can you? put uh, a limit on this while God gave us that. He said, Umar, Umar get it wrong and a woman get it right. And then you have the role as Sayyid Aisha took in the conflict in the days of Ali ibn Abi Talib, Allah Now the point here is not 
who was right, who was wrong. Ali was right. Ali was the legitimate Khalifa. The point is that Sayyid Aisha led the group also, even. She was the one who communicated with others. To, to, uh, that at the end led to the fighting, uh, unfortunate fighting, Ma'arakat al-Jaman. But Sayyid Aisha took a, a very advanced role in public life. Even in the education. Sayyid Aisha took advanced role in the education after the death of Muhammad So to say that woman is not allowed to participate in the public life, this, is, this does not belong to Islam at all. And to say that the hijab, I understand some people who talk about the niqab, that woman has to cover her face, which is called hijab. But to uh, have them separated totally from the public sphere, that's not from Islam. Ummahatul Mu'mineen, all of them used to wear the hijab, covering the face. But all of them participated in public life. So this, uh, quote-unquote, segregation and preventing women from participating in the public life does not, is not from Islam. Um, so in your mind, well, actually this question is in, is in two parts. How early should a a parent uh, begin to uh, uh, ask their daughters to wear uh, hijab um, or the khimar. And um, uh, what if a, a daughter at the age of maturity begins to rebel against this? How does a yeah. Muslim parent treat okay. it? Well, first of all, the education has no age, no age limit. Uh, it's a continuous process. The best thing I would say is if the parents were able to build in their children this, these concepts in an organic way, naturally, without forcing them. So they will grow up knowing that this, okay, this is their duty and that's their duty. Without forcing them. I know and I can bring you many examples. One example is that, you know, uh, a sister told me about her daughter. Uh, she was wearing the khimar, and then they have to travel to uh, to the States. So the daughter told her, her daughter told her that, okay, I'm going there. I don't want to put it. So her mother told her that I'm not in a position to tell you what to do, what not to do. You know what's right, you know what's wrong. Do what you believe it's right. That was good enough. Subhanallah. So let's not think that force will give results. Force can backfire. And if a sister, if a family has, you know, one, one daughter, I know some families, they have, let me say, more than one daughter. Some of them put the khimar, some of them don't. Both of them were raised in the same family. So life is more complex than, okay, do this and do that. But I wouldn't say to to enforce. And even if she chooses not to wear, she must feel that this is her home and... uh, 
those are her parents and always they have room for her. I mean, that's a really refreshing approach, uh, Brother Iyad. Now, finally, uh, we live in a, a world where the Islamic rules are being questioned and many Muslims have doubts about Islam and the liberal West take every opportunity to undermine the practice of Islam and its culture and its its values. And uh, there is a fear now in the West that uh, the next generation and the generation afterwards may even lose Islam and lose its its essence and its conceptual frameworks and its practice. Uh, do you share this pessimistic view about uh, the Muslim community in America, in Britain, in other Western societies? And if so, what can we do about it? I'm not sure about the future. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to offer us or to offer our children a future, future better than what we lived in. But the point, I would say the point is that the community needs to know that this is not individualistic effort. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, In a plural form, or those who believe, those who believe, not to one particular this who believes, protect yourselves, not protect yourself. Your families, not your family. So we need to realize that protecting my family is the responsibility of all of us. Protecting his family is the responsibility of all of us. Protecting her family is the responsibility of all of us. This needs a collective effort. And then each community needs to figure out what 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 do they need in terms of education, in terms of social interaction, so that they will try to build certain environment for their families and for their children. But if we didn't think about it, yeah, we'll not uh, uh, be able to address these challenges. It's not easy challenge. Barakalafik, Brother Iyad. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you, inshallah. Uh, Thank you for giving me this opportunity, inshallah.